Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are here in an exciting venue. I'm in Anchorage, Alaska, National Tribal Health Conference. National Indian Health Board is putting this on. We've got people from all over the country that are gathering here. I'm in an exhibit hall right now that is sparsely populated because it has not officially opened, but it was a perfect opportunity to grab someone who is very difficult to actually sit down with at uh, an event like this, Stacy Bolin. It's great to have you with us, Stacy. It's my pleasure to be here. Stacy, you are the CEO of the National Indian Health Board. You guys have pulled this whole amazing event together, and I know there's all kinds of people trying to clamor for your attention, but we're so glad that you stepped away and we're willing to sit down in our virtual studio here. I love talking to you. This is a great opportunity to just have a little chat. Stacy, a lot of folks who tune into the show throughout Indian country, they know your name, they've met you, but there's other folks who, I mean, honestly, we have a lot of non-native listeners. Great. So Stacy Bolin may be a strange name to them. Tell sure. us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So Ani Baju and Hello. My native name is Turtle Woman. I am a citizen of the Sault Ste. Marie tribe of Chippewa Indians in Michigan. And my role as a turtle woman in community is to speak the truth for all the people, mm. which when you live in Washington, D.C., makes you quite a rarity. But <laughs> I strive to live up to that. Uh-huh. My Anglo name, of course, is Stacy Bolin. And I have lived in Washington, D.C. or New York City for about 35 years. Wow. This wow. is my 20th year with the National Indian Health Board. That is incredible. I, I can't believe it myself. It's such a privilege. Well, you guys have done such great work. I've had the privilege of uh, actually working in Indian country for about the same length of time, 20, 25 years. Well, thank you for that. And uh, it's been a privilege. It really has. It is. One of the things I love about your story is that indigenous connection with your name. Mm. And uh, tell us a little bit growing up. I mean, was that something significant to you? Was that inculcated that your name meant something special? You had a special purpose in life? Uh, no, actually, I got the name when I was an adult. Mm. And But what has meant a great deal to me is that my mother is Anishinaabekwe. She's a native woman, enrolled citizen of Sault Ste. Marie, uh, Chippewa tribe. But my father is first-generation American mm. from Germany. Really? And he was a labor leader. So I would tell you I'm a product of powwows and picket lines. <laughs> and anyone who's met me will be like, oh, that explains everything. Well, it's great that you you have such a vision. You bring this passion to what you do. I know a lot's been happening with the National Indian Health Board. I yes. keep hearing about all kinds of innovative things that are going on. For folks that haven't been keeping up, why don't we try to do that in this show? What's been happening lately at NIHB? Wow. Well, let's see. We are building a behavioral health department at the National Indian Health Board. We're building a child and maternal health national center of excellence at NIHB in policy and program. We've combined two of our national conference products into one major event, which you're about to experience here in Alaska. And we have an incredible uh, planning and event team that we've never had before mm. putting that together. 
We also have a burgeoning government relations department that is uh, bringing in federal relations and really making a robust presence and assistance with tribal advisory committees and making sure that tribal leaders are fully prepared and have all the support that they need to engage on an equal basis with the federal government and affirming their sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So there's just so much going on and we're moving. We're moving to a new location. Okay. Yep. Is that so you have more space? We need more space. Yeah. We've tripled the size of our staff in the last two years. Wow. wow. And we have about 30 positions that are brand new and open. The Environmental Protection Agency and the Biden administration just granted us a $10 million award to be a national tribal center for climate justice. Wow. Wow. So we're growing. We're hiring. We got lots of opportunity at the National Indian Health Board. If you want to make a difference in Indian country, this is the place to do it. Well, I mean, this is such a wonderful venue to mention that, of course, in here in Anchorage, Alaska, but also on the radio show. So we've got a lot of uh, people that are in tribal health departments, other people that are early in their careers. Some are mm-hmm. in training, they're listening, or family members. So is there an appropriate way to reach out to someone if they say, hey, National Indian Health Board is actually hiring people? I mean, is that, am I hearing you right? You're hearing me right, yes. So who do they get a hold of? Well, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, okay. or you can email our HR director, uh, Liz Carney, mm-hmm. and I can share that information with you. Perfect, perfect. So, uh, so this is exciting because, you know, one of the things that I notice that often happens is people will have a vision, uh, indigenous people. They'll say, I want to give back to my community. I want to give back to my people. And uh, they may even be in training right now and they're looking and they're saying, you know, what opportunities are there? Sure. And so really just to hear that not only are you growing, but you're bringing people on board. And I've run into someone already at this event that, as an early career professional, said uh, you kind of took them under their wing and you've been just involving them in so many exciting things. So I think that's uh, tremendous to know that you guys are are growing and have those opportunities. Mm -hmm. Stacey, let's talk about the mental health area because Mm -hmm. so often when I'm speaking with people throughout Indian country, you know, we hear concerns about just the trauma that people experience because of mental health issues. And it's not a native issue, okay? This is a worldwide issue. We've got an epidemic of mental health problems. And you at the National Indian Health Board are now trying to move in a really bold direction with that. You've already alluded to that, but help us understand a little bit more about what's kind of fueling that passion and where things are going. Well, there are a couple of things that are really driving that car. And frankly, they're transformational foundational principles that we're standing on as an organization and doing organizational transformation as well. We hear a lot of people talking about trauma-informed care, trauma, and decolonizing and so forth. But what we are learning, and I think we're embracing, is the reality that it is part of the conqueror's playbook that we will be completely scrubbed of our culture our language, our identity as Native peoples. If you don't identify as a Native people, why would you want your land back? You don't even know where your land is, mm. right? Right, right, if right. The, if the uh, program is successful enough, you could get someone to say to you, well, we're in a melting pot, and you know, you don't look Indian. Mm. Well, you know what? The answer to that is, I am Indian, so this is what Indian looks like. Uh-huh. Don't let anybody take your culture from you. But at NHB, how it's playing out is this. Michael Chandler is a researcher in Canada. He did research probably 20 years ago on First Nations communities 
that had high suicide rates. Mm. And he wanted to see why that was happening. And he had a theory that where there is strong cultural connection and vibrancy, there is low suicide rates. Mm -hmm. So he went to communities where there was no suicide. And sure enough, he had 10 factors for measuring whether culture is fully present and ceremony and traditional healing Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. forth. And where those things are high, suicide is very low. Mm. So the more successful the conqueror's playbook is in divorcing us from our cultures and robbing us of our identities and crushing our spirits as native people, the more depressed we will be, the more in despair, the higher the suicide rates will be. Mm. Those are elements that creator chose to make us who we are. And if you take those from us, you take our very souls. I have heard some exciting things over the years, fairly recently especially, about interventions where people are trying to strengthen those cultural ties and, you know, addressing these issues. Is that some of the vision that, that's driving what you're doing at National Indian Health Park? It absolutely is. You know, I heard a report recently on National Public Radio that African nations have the highest suicide rates in the world at about 20 events per 100,000 people. Mm. That's a small fraction of what's happening in Indian country. Suicide's the number two cause of death of our children. Wow. And the CDC, obviously, you probably are aware, last August came out with a report stating that our life expectancy has lowered by nearly eight years. We're at 1942 levels for all Americans. American Indian Alaska Native wow. lives are uh, becoming shorter. And uh, just about a month ago, CDC issued a report that adolescent girls in the United States are more hopeless and having suicidal ideation than at any other time. And once again, our people are winning the race to the bottom. Our Mm. girls are in the most despair. And we know that embracing our cultures, a restoration of who we are, will be instrumental in our healing. Mm -hmm. Things like the boarding schools. I mean, we think about 100 years of American policy that was funded, organized, staffed, infrastructure was built to separate us from our identities. Mm -hmm. What if the United States had a hundred year policy of investment to restore those things? Wow. Wow. What if they had a a 100 year investment to build the infrastructure, the capacity, the teachers, everything required to restore ourselves, Mm -hmm. our way, right? I love what you're saying because you know, the criticism that comes from the other side and what you're saying is no, We're just asking for equal treatment. Sure. Yeah, I love that approach because really I think people respond to that like, well, why should we do something special? We're not asking you to do something special. We're just asking to address what has happened, right? You did it once. Now just reverse engineer it and do it again. In uh, in 2023 economic reality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know one of the things, at least in the interventions I've heard about, are a real emphasis on prioritizing indigenous languages. Yes. How much does that seem to be a part of this cultural connectedness? And does National Indian Health Board get into some of the minutia maybe of how programs are done? Or are you more trying to cast a vision and support that nurture? What is your role when we talk about people in the trenches at a tribal level? Well, our role can be either of those things. I mean, we can be called upon to be part of a minutia, if you will, community level support, But what I think that NHB does really well is blowing the dog whistle Mm. and speaking the truth at the Mm. national level, 
honoring and retelling tribal stories in the way that is respectful mm-hmm. and that brings their truth forward, mm-hmm. brings our truth forward, and therefore calls national attention to issues. And usually with national attention and focus come resources and action. And we are in that whole spectrum. That's who we are. But in building our behavioral health department and our behavioral health presence, I mean, this is a place that requires massive investment. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. very little that our organization holds right now to do that work. But we have really dedicated people who are on staff, who are highly educated, qualified Native people who can contribute to this greatly. We have great leadership. The chairman of our organization is a man named Bill Smith, Chief Bill. He's Miak uh, from the native village of Valdez here in Alaska. He's our okay. Alaska representative. Uh-huh. I hope that you have a chance to sit and chat with him. I love that opportunity. His mother was the last native speaker of Miak. Really? Yes. And our chairman, who is a Vietnam combat veteran, amazing person, talks about the fact that a Frenchman heard an interview with her and was so moved, he came here and learned their language, created language course to preserve and hold that language. His really? mother has since gone on her journey, but the language is being revitalized by a Frenchman. That is incredible. It's I, amazing. I, no, I've never heard that story before. That he, is amazing. You have to meet him. He's, he's amazing. But his leadership at NHB is a driving force because he will be very adamant Without our language, we will never be fully healed. Mm-hmm. We need our language. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are exciting times. And uh, thinking of the person tuning in right now who says, well, you know, I've got a vision. I'm, uh, I'm involved. I've got a master's in social work. And maybe I'm working in a community health department that's not Native. I have uh, First Nation roots. I'd love to be involved with something. And they're trying to conceptually say, well, what is National Indian Health Board looking for? My guess would be the response would be, well, we'll call us and call talk us. with us, right? Talk to us, absolutely. Yes. Well, what we're looking for are people who want to make a positive difference on the health outcomes, health systems, economies for American Indian Alaska Native health in this country. This is exciting, Stacey. we got to step away just briefly. Sure. I know you're on a tight schedule. I'm hoping you can stay by because we've got another segment coming right up. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm interviewing Stacey Bowen, CEO of the National Indian Health Board. We've got a lot more coming up in today's interview. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I am in Anchorage, Alaska. They have not officially opened up the exhibit hall, but you may hear some interesting sounds as people are dragging things throughout the exhibits and people are getting set up. So there is some ambient noise, which should give you the atmosphere of this uh, actually very exciting venue. It is a conference that is being put on by the National Indian Health Board. And across from me is the CEO of NIHB, Stacey Boland. Stacey, I'm glad you were able to stay by for one more segment. I'm thrilled to be able to do it. Thank you. Stacy, one of the things that has been exciting to me, and you may or may not know much about my background, but my background really in Indian country started with diabetes. So back in the 1990s, I had left the New York City area to come to Oklahoma. And there was a fellow there who had a vision to develop a state-of-the-art health center in southern Oklahoma. I was one of the physicians that opened up that program, and we were doing a lot with diabetes. And uh, being there in the heart of Indian country, we had a lot of interest from tribes, started to do a lot of work in tribal communities. And, uh, you know, that's grown to my involvement with radio and other things. So I give you that background because back in the 90s, it was more of a horror story when we talked about diabetes in Indian country. And something has dramatically changed over the last 25, 30 years. And now I'll go to conferences, and we're hearing these success stories. We see Native charts that look different than other segments of the world population. We see rates of things increasing. We see actually things going down as far as diabetes and morbidity in Indian country. Tell us a little bit about what you see from your vantage point at NIHB as it relates to diabetes among Native Americans. Sure. Well, diabetes was a plague for our people, and in response to that reality where we had communities where four-year-olds were presenting with type 2 diabetes, mm. there was a move in Congress in the 90s that created the Special Diabetes Program 
for Indians. And that has a sister program called the Special Diabetes Program, which is a National Institutes of Health project for type 1 diabetes. But the Special Diabetes Program for Indians was specifically designed to address the abhorrent disparity that American Indian and Alaska Native people were experiencing, the skyrocketing amputations, blindness, mm. death due to complications surrounding type 2 diabetes. And what this program is, is a program that has uh, mandatory spending of about $150 million per year for tribal communities to create diabetes prevention or treatment programs that bring the best of what their culture and their knowledge has to bear coupled with Western medicine. So you have the best of both worlds, but it's totally driven by tribal knowledge of what will work in that particular tribal nation. Now, at NHB, we serve all 574 federally recognized tribes. So if you've seen one tribe, you've seen one tribe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the beauty of the Special Diabetes Program for Indians is there is no one way. There is the way that works for that particular culture and that particular tribal nation. As a result, hemoglobin A1Cs for Native peoples engaged in SDPI have dropped one whole point nationally. We have had a 45% decline in the incidence and prevalence of end-stage renal disease. That's incredible. It saves $100,000 per person per year out of the Medicaid program to not have to go on dialysis. Uh-huh, uh-huh. The program is more than paying for itself. But it's going to expire. It's expiring in September 30th of this year. So we have a very robust um, effort, advocacy effort nationally, to urge Congress to make it permanent it hasn't had a funding increase for 12 years, wow. so around 12. So we're asking for $250 million a year, making that permanently available and having an arm so that the program receives an increase consistent with the medical rate of inflation mm. on an annual basis so that it doesn't lose money or buying power over time. Because the program funding has not increased in so many years, we have tribal Uh, communities will say, well, we had five people in this program 15 years ago. We had three doctors and Mm. two nurses. But inflation has happened. Reality has changed economically. We now have one employee. Wow. Because the money has not increased. So we had to have one person we could afford at today's level. So we need that increase. So basically, if you look at where we're at, we see all this progress. But at the same time, individuals like yourself who are looking at the big picture you're saying this is not sustainable with where we're at today. Right. And that's a scary prospect when we know where we've been and where we could be going, right? We could go right back there. We could. So you mentioned something interesting. For a lot of folks that don't know the National Indian Health Board, you mentioned the 574 federally recognized tribes. And uh, one of the things that we've done in, in working with indigenous peoples across the tribal spectrum is we've worked with tribes that are not federally recognized. Sure. And I guess the immediate question for a listener may be, well, does NIHB not represent those tribes that are not federally recognized? Help us understand that uh, dynamic. Well, interestingly, we have some spectacular staff members, for example, who are members of state-recognized tribes. And we honor and support their tribal quests to get federal recognition. Mm -hmm. And federal recognition, uh, you know, it's a tricky thing. Because the federal government played so many games with tribal nations, there was the uh, period of time where they just declared, well, nobody's Indian anymore. There aren't any tribes. You know, we're just 
going to do away with that she just can't because we're in the constitution of the United States. Mm -hmm. We are treaty having folks and there have been negotiations with our people from California to the Pueblos to the Alaska Native communities that have been different. You know, it's a, it's a multifoliate kind of process that occurs. So this organization upholds the federal government's trust obligation to the federally recognized tribal governments. Hmm. We are created by those tribes to fight for sovereignty and the federal government to fulfill its trust obligation to those folks. So that's the distinction. I got it. Let's come back to diabetes. Sure. And we've got a situation where new appropriations need to be made. Yes. People are listening to this show throughout Indian country. Many folks that listen, honestly, are not Native. Sure, good. And what I'm saying is, what is the message that you'd like to communicate? What can someone do if they say, hey, this sounds like something that we should be investing in as a country, as a nation? How does someone help just a person on the street? Yeah. Well, first of all, I absolutely love and appreciate our brothers and sisters who are not Native, as I do our Native brothers and sisters. We need friends and allies. Mm. We only occur now, thanks to U.S. policy, in 34 states. So when you're talking about the Senate, there's 16 states we don't have tribal governments in. Mm -hmm. We have people, tribal citizens. But the trust obligation attaches to the tribal government. So American Indian health is American. It's an Mm -hmm. American issue. Health touches all of us. If we've learned nothing from COVID, it's that disease is no respecter of persons. Mm -hmm. It doesn't know where a reservation or an international boundary is. It will go where it can have its opportunistic self expressed, Mm -hmm. right? So we need your help. And if people out there want to be involved in our advocacy, I would ask you to go to our website, www.nihb.org. We're also on social media at NIHB1 on Instagram, Twitter, and you can follow us on Facebook. This is great information. We talked in the earlier segment about job opportunities. Mm -hmm. We're talking now about opportunities for anyone who has an interest in Native American health to look at uh, being a potential ally of the National Indian Health Board. Give us that contact information again, because I know some people, they might be driving. Things are kind of flying by quickly. You bet. Please, Stacey, go ahead. Sure. Our website is www.nihb.org. We can be followed on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at NIHB1. And we would love to talk to you. Please, we put out the hand of friendship. We would love to walk with you in a better day for our people's health. Stacey, we're in the home stretch of this segment. I know you've got other responsibilities. You're going to have to slip away. But uh, whenever we have a guest uh, of your caliber on the show, sometimes you've come with things on your mind. You say, you know, there's some messages that I would love to get out throughout Indian country and beyond. Anything especially, I mean, even just want to share some of your enthusiasm about this conference or Mm -hmm. or, or anything, just for people to catch a feel a little bit more for what's really driving you and those that you work with. Well, there is a brand new thing that just happened that I would love to share. Last week, we were at the United Nations uh, on the we spoke to the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Wow. And along with a group from around the world, we wrote a report called the Indigenous Determinants of Health. Hmm. Now, the social determinants of health, when they were created, did not 
have anything to do with indigenous people around the world. And they did not have to do with American Indian, Alaska Native people in the United States of America or Native Hawaiians for that matter. Mm -hmm. But when you are looking at the health of indigenous people, especially those colonized by Great Britain, ironically, our statistics, our our incidence prevalence statistics internationally are almost identical. Hmm. Even in New Zealand, where they have single payer system and their political construct is different. It is that what we've been talking about, that impact of colonization. So we just put out a new report. You can get it at the UN website or on our website. And we are going to change the way people talk about and think about us. That is tremendous. Stacy. I know you got to run. Time is out in this segment as well. Thank you so much for pulling away from your uh, important responsibilities and joining us. My pleasure. Miigwech. Thank you. Don't you leave if you're tuning in today. We're going to be back with more from the National Indian Health Board's National Tribal Health Conference in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm Dr. DeRose. Stay tuned. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for the second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Dr. David DeRose here in 
Anchorage, Alaska. It is May of 2023, and I'm just so excited to be rubbing shoulders with all these great people in Indian country. It's an exciting venue. We haven't fully opened the exhibit hall, but they've been gracious. They're allowing us to record here. And if you're hearing people having animated conversations and you're hearing people dragging carts across the floor in front of us, you'll know exactly what we're dealing with. I thought Stacy Bolin had to run, but uh, Stacy, you are so gracious to stay by because there's something we really wanted to talk about, the National Indian Health Board, and we've got some help to do it. And I just got to let the folks know a little bit of background. So I got a beautiful bag when I came here, you know, like conferences. I, I got to tell you something about Indian country. You may or may not know this, but when I go to a native conference, it seems like your bags are always nicer than other conferences that I go to, okay? <laughs> Not, not only the bag, but you've got all kinds of great stuff in it. Now, it's true. Uh, for my listeners, you folks you know, have been gracious in partnering with our radio show and magazine. So American Indian and Alaska Native Living magazine is in every packet. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a nice uh, full-page spread about our radio show. So it's not just that. There is also these wonderful things in there. And my bag has somehow, it was so nice that I think someone has walked off with it. I think it was my wife who's now got two of them. But um, inside there was a a box, very colorful, native uh, design box. And it said something like act of love. Did I catch that right? That's right. It's the act of love. Tell us about this. Well, this is our signature COVID prevention package that we did. It's our project that we did at the National Indian Health Board. I want to tell you a little bit about how it happened. At the very beginning of the pandemic, my mother had to have emergency surgery. Of course, Michigan is my native home Mm -hmm. where my mother lives. She's going to be 90 in December, so she needed help. And so there was no flying. So I drove from Washington, D.C., where I live, to Bay City, Michigan, where she now lives. When I went through D.C., Maryland, Pennsylvania, Ohio, everywhere I stopped, people were wearing their masks. They were socially distancing, being very polite and gingerly sort of understanding what Mm -hmm. the rules are to keep us all safe. Well, I get into my home state of Michigan and I stop for gas. Not only were people not wearing masks, they're being very aggressive toward me for wearing a mask and telling me that I had been brainwashed. Whoa. (laughs) It was almost like I was an operative for some covert operation because I'm wearing a mask during an international pandemic. Well, this happened a couple of times. And the, the, the second or third time it happened, I, I mean, it's startling because they're not wearing a mask. It's kind of scary, right? I got in the car and I said, I don't understand why people are so up in arms about this. This mask isn't even protecting me. It's protecting them. In fact, wearing this mask is an act of love. Hmm. So the Act of Love campaign was born. And the Act of Love campaign consists of that beautiful box that you discussed mm. with Native art, five different iterations of the box that respect and hopefully will be attractive to Native people in five different regions of our country. Uh-huh. The box has a mask that bears that same Native art. It has hand sanitizer. It has a card that talks about the acts of love. It has some temporary tattoos like I'm a vaccinative. <laughs> and it talks about what the acts of love are like Getting vaccinated is an act of love. It's an act of love to community, to yourself, to your family, to your nation, your tribal nation, your state, everything. Bringing someone else in to get vaccinated is another act of love. Washing your hands or using hand sanitizer is an act of love. Social distancing is an act of love and so on. 
And I love what you're sharing because there's other folks, like you said, you ran into plenty of folks who said this was not an act of love and you're brainwashed, you're an operative. And to me, this is one of the things that I've appreciated about Indian country is a culture of respect. Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing something out of my concern for other people, can you respect that I'm doing that? And I sense that dynamic in what you're sharing. Mm -hmm. To me, that's something we've lost many times in much of the dialogue, if I even call it dialogue, Mm -hmm. in our country. So was that part of what was motivating this, just this spirit of caring for one another and letting people know that this is something that was important to you? Yes, and important to me, not only as a Native person, as a human being, but as a person who serves all the tribes in this country for health care, you know. Um, It was important to me that people stop thinking about wearing a mask as a political act because, like we said earlier in this segment, disease does not respect people. Disease is an opportunist. It's going to go where it wants to go. And we can do certain things to mitigate damage, to keep ourselves happy, to keep ourselves at least in a place where health is possible, right? Mm. And this program was launched in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. Wow. Last week, I was at the National Governors Association. I got to speak in Detroit. Uh-huh. They're having a national roundtable on child and maternal health. And I got to meet Governor Whitmer mm-hmm. from Michigan. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell her the story that this was born in Michigan. Mm. She's putting it in one of the museums in Michigan. Really? She's going to have all five of them and say this was born in Michigan. Wow. Yeah, we're, I'm pretty excited about that. That is great. Now, we've got someone else in the virtual studio right now, someone else from your team. Mm -hmm. Tell me uh, who's sitting next to you. Sitting next to me is an amazing young woman, Darby Gallagher, who is Miami tribe, and she is our communications coordinator for the National Indian Health Board. Darby has a master's in public health from NYU. This young woman is so dynamic and amazing. You should all come to work at National Indian Health Board in our communications department just so you can suck up her sunlight. Darby, you've got an amazing story, I know. I mean, it's not uh, every Native woman that would venture into the uh, environment of New York City. That that took bravery, I'm sure. Definitely not, yeah. yeah. I met a few Native women at NYU that inspired me to do this, and... Through them, met Stacy, got connected with NIHB, and it felt like divine intervention. Now, you are also someone who's really caught the vision for this Act of Love uh, project, but a lot of other things as well. Tell us a little bit why Stacy felt it was so important for us to not just hear her side of the story, but to make sure that we got to hear from you as well, Darby. Yeah, of course. Um, so I got really lucky, actually, when I interviewed with Stacy hadn't even started working yet um we hit it off really 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 quickly um and i told her just about what it was like being in new york through the pandemic and what it was like i had like i had a roommate but they ended up going back home during the pandemic Mm -hmm. so i was alone and talking about that um and she was like well how would you like to work on this active love project it's brand new we need someone to take charge and give it direction and i was terrified Uh horrified (laughs) horrified i cried for a little after the interview Uh like talking to my roommates and i was like guys i don't know if i can do this this is scary so this is before you were offered the job am i hearing this right yeah before i even was offered the job before i even graduated from grad school it was like a week before graduation wow yeah 
But you had all kinds of people clamoring for your attention, right? You had probably 10 or 12 job offers at that point? Surprisingly, no. Really? I maybe thought it would be a little better than that. But oddly enough, maybe not oddly, again, divine intervention, NIHB was the only organization to get back to me when I applied to jobs. I probably applied to 10 or 15 places. Okay, so not everyone has good discretion, good hiring practices. We've established I, that. but I, I guess not, right? <laughs> We're inspired. We're inspired at NHV. We saw, we know the goods and we see them. And, girl, you are the goods. <laughs> so let me see this. This is an interesting scenario, though, because the one place that's expressing interest in you is talking with you about a position that you feel unqualified for. So how did this all come about then? How did you decide to take the position? It was a lot of phone calls to my parents, a lot of stress. I had moved to New York on a whim and was like, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to try it. And if it works, I'll try it again. Uh, And I really enjoyed New York. And I was like, let's try D.C. Let's see how it goes. And I will be honest, I didn't love it the first year. It wasn't New York. Mm. I couldn't stop comparing it. I loved that city. Um, but bagels. it is. It's all the bagels, the pizza. There's no bagel those. anywhere else in the world. There's but New not. York. Mm-hmm. I lived in New York. They got the bagels. We See, try. We bonded over that during the interview, too. It was <laughs> so quick, so easy. Um, but probably about, I think after first year, we'd finally finalized the kit artwork. And I found my footing and finally got rid of that original imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's been great ever since. Wonderful. How long have you been with the team now? I'll start my third year this summer. This is great. Tell me a little bit more about the Acts of Love project and how you got involved. What did you specifically do with that? Yeah. So when I started at NIHB, actually, I started out as a member of our public health team, and I was a project coordinator working specifically on COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy projects. Mm. And I had been in and out of CDC meetings, lots of talking with tribes, tribal leaders, people I had just been working with, and had heard a lot that some of the best ways they were inspired to go get their vaccines was by doing it for their family, for their friends, to keep their elders safe, to keep youth safe, because they couldn't get vaccinated yet. And I remember, I was like, oh, we can spin this in a way people are going to love these acts of love. Um, And I was our coordinator on that project. I've been working on it like two full years now. Wow, yeah. wow. So, Darby, one of the things I found very interesting, you know, during all that was going on with COVID-19 is I was speaking with people throughout Indian country about this whole subject of vaccination. And, of course, being a show that airs nationally and internationally, people, you know, today they listen to podcasts, and we heard things, you know, across the spectrum. And, and we've got people that are listeners that uh, said, stop saying anything about vaccination on the show and so we're definitely not revisiting that topic for any specific reason we're hearing your story and i I think it's a exciting story but the reason i mention that background is it seems as i talk with people in indian country there was a lot more cohesion around the public health concepts let me put it this way you'd think in a culture that had been traumatized by the federal government historically that there'd be lower acceptance rates of things coming from the federal government, including vaccinations. And I found it was the opposite, at least in the people that I dealt with. 
Is that what you experienced or was I seeing something different? No, that is what the research was showing. NIHB, not yet, but soon, hopefully, um, we will be able to turn into our own data center. Um, but we did use a lot of CDC data, which was showing at the beginning of the pandemic, tribes led the way in vaccinations. We had the highest rates of vaccinations. And I vividly remember we did a big webinar series specifically relating to active love and bringing in people from different organizations, different tribes, that sort of thing. And I vividly remember we did a webinar on historical trauma, Mm. um, specifically historical medical trauma. And because we were the same thing, we were like, we as natives have had this insane, insane, insane's not even a good word for it. It's worse than insane medical traumatic history. Mm Mm-hmm. And you would expect that we wouldn't want to go through that again. People Mm -hmm. would have the same feelings. But what we noticed was that people were spinning this to keep everyone safe so it didn't happen again. Mm. Instead of letting something happen to us, what if we just prevented it ourselves? Mm -hmm. We do have to step away. I know there's more to be said on a broader range of topics. I'm hoping one or, or both of you can stay with me. And we'll finish this show out. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Whoever's in front of me, though, here in Anchorage, Alaska, you don't want to miss it if you're a listener. We're going to be back with more for our final segment right after these important messages. Stay tuned. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We are still in Anchorage, Alaska. We wouldn't come up here and leave so soon. And uh, we are grateful, although Stacy Boland did have to slip away, to have Darby, her colleague, the communication coordinator for NIHP, staying by. Darby, I'm so glad you stayed by because you and I were speaking off air. You have an amazing story. Tell us a little bit first about your native roots. Yeah, yeah, of course. So... I'll start way back from the beginning. I was born and raised in Indiana. I grew up in the Indianapolis area. Uh, my dad is native. My mom is not. He is a member of the Miami tribe of Oklahoma, which is a weird differentiation. If you're like, why are you saying specifically Oklahoma? We have, I know Stacy talked about um, federally versus state-recognized tribes, mm-hmm. and we have a state-recognized Miami tribe of Indiana in Indiana. Um, so there's that little difference. Uh, but was born and raised in Indiana and was not super connected to my tribe mm-hmm. whatsoever. It feels weird to say now because it feels like millennia ago mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. was not connected to my tribe in some way. Um, but up until really senior year of high school, I didn't know much. I just okay. knew that I was native and I was a member of the Miami tribe, but I didn't know much about it. I would just get every November come when it was time to learn about Christopher Columbus. They'd be like, hey, Darby, what do you know? And I'd be like, not much, but I can tell you what I've Googled. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And then that changed with with a quickness I've never seen when I got to college. Um, so I did my undergrad at uh, Miami University in Ohio. And a little fun fact about Miami is that the reason it's called Miami University, on top of the fact that it's in the Miami River Valley in was that southwest Ohio, right across the border from Indiana, it's also the ancestral homelands of the Miami people. Mm. So it goes down into that Miami River Valley and up to the Chicago-Fort Wayne area. Wow. Yeah. And Fort Wayne is our homelands. That is where our coming out story originates. It's where we came to be. That's called Kikayonge. Oh, I haven't spoken in a while, so if it gets rusty, I'm sorry. Uh-huh. Um, but that's Kikayonge. It's our coming out place. It's our homelands. And Miami was really ahead of the curve, mm. especially when it comes to all of these tribal issues that we see, especially like with mascots right now and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like Miami changed their mascot in the 80s to the Red Hawks from okay. what it was before. Um, but Miami is really, really great when they found out that the school was built on our homelands. They reached out to the tribe. They reached out in Oklahoma um, to our chief and was like, hey, we're here. We're on your lands. What can we do about it? Hmm. And I'm probably butchering this story. I know some historian could tell it way better. I just know my professor's like, Darby. <laughs> but it's your story, and that's what we love about it. You're, yeah. you're telling your own personal experience with learning this as a high school student, right? Yeah. Is this where you learned about the commitment that Miami University had? Yeah, I was 18 years old, and I was like, this is weird. All of this stuff is for me. I can do this. Um, Miami actually offers a scholarship 
to any Miami tribal student who attends as sort of like a reparations, and they'll pay our tuition. Yeah. Full tuition? Full tuition. Wow. And you heard about this, and you said, oh, this is obviously true. Was that your first response? I was like, my grandma told me. I was like, grandma, you have got to be kidding me. There's no way. It's college. No one's going to pay my tuition just because of who I am. I thought I'd like earn it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she was like, no, 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 no. Just go try it out. Go talk to him. And I was terrified, horrified to get there because I'd never met anyone. I was so disconnected from my tribe. I was like, you guys are going to think I'm an imposter. Well, so who's going to interview you in this process? Who's talking with you? Yeah. So originally I met with a few people. So at the school, it's called the Miamia Center, and that is our hub. Um, It's where we revitalized our language. It's where we Mm. teach all of these students. And so much goes on there. It's amazing. Uh, so it's in Bonham House on Miami University's campus on Spring Street. I can see it right now. <laughs> um, but up in Bonham House, at the time it was Bobby Burke. She was our liaison pretty mm-hmm. much between the school, the tribe, and the center. She was like a mom away from home. Uh-huh. Kept uh-huh. me in line. She was really good about that. And then we had George Ironstrack. He was our professor. He would take us and teach us everything. And was he native as well from Miami tribe? Wow. Yeah. So from Miami tribe. Yeah. And then we also had Daryl Baldwin. I could talk about him for hours. He's amazing. But he revitalized our language. Wow. And so he kind of led the way with teaching our classes. So the class itself, there was a stipulation to this um, scholarship. And it's a, it's a stipulation, but it wasn't bad at all. Uh, it was a one credit hour course per semester uh, with the other 30 or so tribal students. Mm-hmm. Um, so just hanging out with your family every Tuesday night for an hour. Your first three years and then your fourth, your senior year, you do a capstone project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first three years are split between our uh, language course, where we relearn our language or learn for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a history course based like learning the history of the tribe, the history of the school, the relationship. Mm-hmm. And then there's a aesthetics and sovereignty class where we learn aesthetics and what it's like today mm-hmm. being a tribal mm-hmm. member because mm-hmm. um, it's so much different than the past and then our fourth our senior year we do a capstone project you want something that'll get back to the tribe mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and at that point i was applying to grad school i want i still want to be <laughs> still want to do public health work but i'm doing communications now and i like it mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but wanted to do a medicinal plants today versus the past see what we still use what we can't use what we've learned is poisonous Mm -hmm, all that mm -hmm. stuff so let me see if i've got the process down you're telling us about the program there at miami and i understand you know as you were going through the narrative darby that you had to have an interview in order to get the scholarship but the interview was being conducted by miami tribal members yeah. That were there connected with the university. And it was them that said, this is a legitimate uh, tribal member? Or what was the determination that was made? How does that work? Yeah. So we can use the term interview loosely. Uh-huh. It was me being scared and being like, I need to know someone before I come here. So it was a few of the staff members and then a few of the students, actually. And I'm still great friends with all of them. Uh-huh. It was like a meeting with them to make sure I 
that sounds terrible to say, but make sure I thought I could fit in with them. Mm. They knew everything that felt so much more than I did Mm -hmm. um, about our history and culture. And I just felt like an outsider for a while. And I was really Mm. nervous that they weren't going to like me. Well, it's a wonderful story. And I think this speaks to so many of our listeners because a lot of folks have become very detached from their native roots. Uh, They may be listening in and they say, yeah, I know know I'm native, but I grew up in Oklahoma or the Southwest or, you know, Indiana or Chicago or, you know, wherever. And uh, I just don't feel connected. But what you're saying is that's my identity. And even though I maybe didn't appreciate that, I was embraced. And I love the story. You had that support network. A lot of times Native students do end up on a campus. They don't have that support. But then you, as we learned earlier in the show, transitioned to New York University. And you probably didn't feel that you had that level of Indigenous support. Is that right? That is completely right. It was like going back to being in high school again when Mm. I got to NYU, going from this place that celebrated Indigeneity and that group aspect and being able to be with everyone and be with your family was Mm -hmm. really cool. Mm -hmm. And then I got to New York and I was the only native person in our cohort. Wow. And the cohort above me only had one. Her name was Sutton King. She was amazing for Mm -hmm. me. She was Mm -hmm. amazing. I could talk about her for hours. But when I was there, it was orientation and it was one of Sutton's friends actually was our orientation leader. And she was talking about her friend who interned at the CDC and saw that there was no Native representation and decided she wanted to start her own Native health nonprofit. Mm. And at that time, I was really shy, uh, really introverted, Mm. and I was sweating, freaking out. And I was like, but I I need to meet this person. Mm. I need need to do this. I want to do this. Um, So I walked up to her and I was like, hey, can you please introduce me to your friend? Uh, And uh, the very next day, Sutton and I were getting coffee in Washington Square Park. And was there for her creation of Urban Indigenous Collective, which is a nonprofit in New York. I wish we had more time, but our time has run out in this show. Darby, one of the things that my takeaway from this segment was simply this. For an Indigenous person who's looking for secondary education, uh, post-secondary education opportunities, don't hold back. The creator can connect you with supportive people no matter where you go. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We do have to step away. Hopefully you have been inspired by things that are taking place here in May of 2023 in Anchorage, Alaska at an event being sponsored by the National Indian Health Board. We're at the National Tribal Health Conference. Look for more programming from this very venue coming up in future episodes. I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.